Welcome to The Cartographers, where we map the changing cultural landscape for 21st century Christian leaders. Expect thoughtful conversations with hosts, Bryce and Ashley Hales, a pastor and PhD, along with their guests to help you navigate a changing cultural landscape. Listen in. Welcome back to the Cartographers Podcast. I'm excited because Bryce and I get to chat with Kurt Thompson today. He specializes in bringing together interpersonal neurobiology and a Christian view of what it means to be human. He's written several books, The Soul of Desire, Anatomy of the Soul, and The Soul of Shame. And he has a podcast called The Be Known Podcast. He lives in Arlington, Virginia, and we are so excited to welcome him to the Cartographers. So thank you so much for being with us, Kurt. Ashley and Bryce, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Kurt, we're really excited to talk to you today. So much of your work aims to connect the dots between neurobiology and the soul. And um, our, our podcast, The Cartographers, what we really are wanting to do is helping leaders understand the world that we're living in, where it feels like we're living in a, a place where the cultural landscape is changing so dramatically. Uh, could you help us understand the importance of neurobiology to our spiritual lives and especially how this connection can help us uh, when we're living in a time where it just feels like change is, is the only thing that's normal is this pace of change? Hmm. Hmm. Well, it's a great question. Uh, what I what I usually uh, reflect on with this question is uh, simply the evidence that we have from the patients that we treat, most of whom are people of faith, people who have Christian faith, and they are living, breathing examples of. Uh, you know, at, at the same time that we would say, yes, they come in, they present with all kinds of conditions, depression, anxiety, dissociation, PTSD, substance abuse, a whole range of different things. Uh, and at the same time, one of the things, and we actually talk about this with patients, is the reality that they're also, and so much of what they're experiencing is in no small part, a feature and function of them being a product of modernity. And what I mean by that is that we are people who have uh, as long as we can measure something materially, uh, we can pretty much assume then that God doesn't have anything to do with that. And this has been kind of like the way of the modern world for the last four to 500 years. So it's, we're, 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 we've been at this, it's a long game. We've been at this for a long time. And even, but this is kind of how we also live in the church. The church, we, in the modern world, we tend to think of our spiritual lives as being a fairly disembodied thing. Uh, at the at the very most, it is a cognitive thing that we do. Like we want to preach to us, we want to think our way into behavior. Uh, and as long as we can get things correctly theologically, we somehow think that that's the way that we're going to transform people. And of course, just this this just isn't the way the brain works. One of the things, though, then that with with new dis with new discoveries that we've been making and applying in the last twenty years. Uh, that come directly from this field of what we call interpersonal neurobiology and the way the brain and relationships are working with each other to shape one another, not just my individual brain, but my brain and yours together, how we do this communally. We come to find that the very neuroscience itself that we're studying is actually inviting us to come back to the things that we read about on the first two pages of the Bible. 
and then we get to Paul's letter to the church at Rome, where he writes in 120 that from the very beginning, the creation has spoken of God's nature and God's power. And part of that creation is what we're discovering in neuroscience about how the brain and relationships work in the material world. And the material world points us back to the fact that we are, before anything else, we are mud, right? God took mud from the earth in Genesis 2, 7, and he breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils and became a living soul. And this is actually really quite energizing because as we have been talking, as we talk with patients about the mechanics, when with science, science doesn't talk about purpose. It doesn't talk about teleology. It doesn't talk about meaning. It talks about mechanics. That's what science tells us about the world. It tells us about the mechanics of the world. What's so striking, though, is that when we start to talk with people about the mechanics of how their minds operate in relationship to relationships, uh, they will begin to report about how it is that understanding this, understanding the created universe, actually gives them a much more robust, felt, viscerally experienced sense of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, and this then awakens us to the fact that there's just a lot about even how we read the texts, how we read the scriptures, that uh, like has that we've just been off our game now for probably a good 200 years. Uh, because we are so committed to, uh, a, you know, an intellectual uh, critique of what people think and all the things that we stop paying attention to what the Bible is really trying to get at. And it's really trying to get to how we as embodied creatures live in the world to create beauty and goodness in the world, which is what we read about on the first two pages of the Bible. And so um, I think we're finding that this, I know, realize is a long-winded answer to your question. But it, it, what neuroscience is doing, like the, the science itself, is turning is turning our attention back to uh, the life breath of the gospel. That God, you know, God could have created us from a distance. He didn't do that in Genesis two. He gets down in the mud, and God could have spoken some new covenant. I'm not quite sure how he would have done it. God can do whatever he pleases without sending an embodied incarnate self. Uh, but that's not what he did. Uh, we have we have Jesus and we have an embodied neurobiologically infused human being uh, who is also our king. And if we're not willing to pay attention to who he really is in his embodied self, then it's going to be really difficult for us to have some connection, any connection for what it really means for me to be loved and there, let alone be saved. Wow. I mean, that that was such a rich response, Kurt. Thank you so much. I, I'm curious. I mean, you're kind of speaking from the standpoint of um, how, how a, a Christian can think about neurobiology. I'm wondering if you can kind of help us think about it in the opposite direction. I, I mean, you said that understanding material realities about how our minds work help us understand who we are spiritually. Uh, could you help us think about, or or how would you maybe um, even talk about this uh, from the standpoint of somebody who begins with a materialistic uh, kind of worldview? How do we then uh, help that that sort of person begin to think about what the Bible calls a soul? Well, you know, it's it's interesting uh, to me. Um, human beings, whatever their particular worldview, whatever their anthropology is. Uh, we still have some things in common, whether you're a Jesus follower or not. And one of the things that we have in common, and again, this is this is why in 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 speaking to audiences uh, who are not people of faith, 
this is why talking about the material world is a helpful uh, entry point to this. Uh, because uh, for all of our uh, commitment to reducing everything to uh, a materialist way of understanding the world, um, you know, at some point you ask the question, uh, what do you want? What do you want in life? What do you want? And if you keep pushing this question far enough, uh, you come to find that most people, if they are awake and alert and attuned, they will say, I really want to be loved so that I can love and so that I can go on to like make things in the world that are things of beauty and so forth and so on. Now, now people who say, what do I want? I want a yacht and I want a house on Malibu that's not too close to the edge of the ocean because, you know, bad things happen to those houses. I, 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 you know, it's like, you know, but then, but then you say, like, so tell me what, like, it, because what will that do for you? What, what is it about that that you want? You, you eventually get back to this notion of like, I, I want to be loved and I want to love and I want to make things that are beautiful in the world. And then you just, you just want to be curious. And it's like, where does that come from? Like, what's, what do you think you, that just popped out of the sky and just, that just showed up? And is that, is that the way that you would want it to be? And then you ask them like, well, what well, would you want? there to be a God who loves you so much that he would die for you? Would you want that? Now, most people, like, like it's flabbergasting to them that, that that could even be a possibility because that's, they don't imagine that Jesus uh, has anything to do with the creator coming and dying for people. Uh, they think of Christianity as it's, it's a completely uh, it's something else other than that. Um, but when you uh, in this this I mean uh, we're we're just in the middle of my, in our practice we've just complete you know completing two and a half days of an intensive in which we are training twenty four people that have come from all over the country in what it means to be engaged in what we call these confessional communities that we are developing and. And, uh, you know, these are people who are all walks of life, all kinds of professions and so forth. They're really asking the question, what does it mean for me to be truly known uh, in order for me to then go on and create beauty and goodness in the world? And you come to find out that we're really good at uh, living on the surface. Uh, but you get in a room where people are actually willing to tell the real truth about their stories. And you find that there's a lot more that they want that is not just about the material goods that they say that they think they believe in. Um, and so I, to, to the materialist, I would be very, I would really want to know, I would want to have coffee with them or maybe a really good meal. And we would want to say, tell me what you want. And, uh, and then I would want to know, like, what, what, would, what, what, what do you think about a God who wants the same thing for you? Yeah. And, and, and is that a story that you would be willing to entertain? Because I know of one. That's beautiful. That, that, that may find its way into my sermon on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> you can attribute it to Kurt. I love it. Or not. Like, you know, it's, 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 it's you know, I'm not the first, right? It's just, these are the, these are the, these are the first two pages of the Bible and then everything else that follows. I mean, this is <laughs> yes. what we're doing. Yes. Well, Kurt too, I'd like to talk a little bit as well about a lot of the, the way in which some of this language gets kind of, put out there on the online interwebs. And, you know, there's a lot of things 
the language of therapy, things like attachment theories and windows of tolerance and all of these things are helpful terms, I think, for us. Um, but I think I wonder if some of the net effect of some of putting therapy language out there is that it leads a lot of hearers or readers to kind of just have more information, have more vocabulary and to not actually heal or move through hard things. It kind of feels a little bit performative. Um, whereas therapy, as you're saying, can be great in private, in small groups, but something potentially happens when you put it out online. Um, went for a mass audience, I wonder. So help us understand how do we keep kind of the gospel as you're talking about top of mind as we're growing and healing while we maybe have like you are you're you have your own podcast you're writing about these things online so while we still are involved in you know being visible online so what's that connection between change and growth and healing technology that is to a mass audience and to keep the gospel right in the center yeah I, you know um uh uh, you know, it was uh, former House Speaker Tip O'Neill who famously, who famously said, all politics are ultimately local. And he wasn't, uh, he wasn't the first to get his hands around this notion. Um, Jesus didn't walk around with 5,000 people following him everywhere he went. He walked around with a dozen or so. And the whole notion of, uh, and, and so all, all that is to say is that um, things like the language of psychotherapy and neuroscience and so forth, like it is not the only thing that we offer to the masses. I mean, we offer things to the masses in churches of 10,000. We offer things to them. I mean, we, we I mean, th this is, you know, it's not, in other words, Offering these to the masses is not limited to what we do with the language of psychotherapy. We do with the language of faith all the time. And so in many respects, it doesn't really matter what kind of language we're talking about. Offering anything to the masses uh, makes transformation more challenging because transformation happens most powerfully when human bodies are in the room with each other. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the only place that it happens. Uh, but when I when I speak to uh, a room of, or of 30, as I've been the last two and a half days, or I speak to a room of 300, or I speak to a room of 3,000, um, the same things can happen in the room. But as I tell people, uh, when you get done, you know, you come to a training seminar that I'm going to do for three days, I say, like, at the end of this training seminar, you're not going to be any smarter. And you're like, uh, should I be asking for my money back? I, I thought that's why I'm coming. Do you sorry? I said, of course, you will have acquired more information, but my job is not to make you smarter. My job is to inspire you to go home and do the work. And the work is always only most powerfully done in the context of intimately connected human relationships. And so no matter what the language is that we're using, whether it's the language of psychotherapy or even the language of faith, at some level, um, we really have to ask the question, to what degree are we being deeply known with other human, with other embodied people 
in the way that we uh, imagine that we are being known by Jesus. There are plenty of people who would say, oh, like, I don't trust people. I trust God, but I don't trust people, to which we would say, like, that's actually not true. You don't trust, we, we only, to the degree that we trust our most trusted friends. That's how, that, that's a measure of how much we trust God. Because, like, I can only, I don't trust God in my imagination. I don't trust God. Like, I trust him with my body. I trust him with the things that I do. And so, and, and so he, this is then the other question that I, that I think that is, that is helpful, at least for me, um, when, when we're considering these things. I would say, okay, uh, it, no matter what you do, when you read this online, whether it's about window of tolerance or whether it's about um, here's my daily text for Lent that I'm getting with the scripture reading for today, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what we're like. I want to know what is actually what are you actually going to do with this with another human being? Uh, that is going to enable this to become an embodied and embedded reality that changes not just what you are thinking theologically or think that you believe in your spiritual formation, but like how is it actually changing your neural circuitry? How is it actually changing the way you are sensing, imaging, feeling, thinking, and responding to your wife or your husband in the kitchen when you want to like say mean things? Like how is that actually which many of our listeners might say like, oh yeah, you mean like this morning? Yes, this morning. And so I don't know if, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that. I mean, present company, of course, excluded at all times. I, but I, but, but I, of course, right. Of course. But, but I'm just, I think, I think you get what I mean. There's this sense of like, it, it really depends. And, and here's where, and, and so I'll, I'll, I'll circle back around and say, this would be an example of where I would say, oh, what we learn about attachment helps us answer this question because uh, the degree to which I'm either securely or insecurely attached is going to shape and uh, influence uh, the ease with which I'm going to want to have connection with people in a way that allows myself to be seen, soothed, safe, secure by those folks such that I can be loved, such that I can then become this, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so a, a lot of, it feels like a lot of this work, at least initially, it feels individual. Um, but you've, you've been touching on um, the, the communal and corporate reality of who we are as human beings. Uh, I think that's really interesting. We're, we're living through this time where it feels like there's a lot of suspicion about institutions. Um, and, but then there's also um, you know, a, a push from some, uh, from Christians and others, um, to sort of reinvest in, in building institutions and just be becoming more attentive to, uh, the corporate, um, the needs that we have to be in corporate communities as, as human beings. And so uh, maybe the question is this, how do we, um, uh, how do we cultivate those places? I mean, we, we're, we're talking to people. I mean, you've just re referenced husbands and wives. We're talking about families. Uh, we're talking to uh, people who are in leadership roles in in churches and communities. Um, you know, what? How do how do people in those roles uh, help others grow wise together? It's a great question, and again, I think that. Um... Uh, so here's here's my, my response is in some respects uh, where we find ourselves with the uh, suspicion of institutions. In some respects, we might say, uh, looking through the rearview mirror, we might say, "Oh, 
This would have been completely predictable beginning somewhere around the turn of the 18th century. It's a long time ago, like where institutions were still solid and so forth and so on. But it is inevitable that if we are going to be committed to a world in which at the end of the day, the individual is the most uh, highly celebrated way of being in the world. I mean, this is the U.S. Constitution. This is the Declaration of Independence, right? And it's all it, it, it's, it's it's all it's all great stuff until right the fruit of the labor of it comes home to roost. Um, in which, like you, and, and at some point, like I think COVID probably sped it up, but like, but that's all that it did. It's not like COVID caused it. COVID just kind of pulls the curtain back on, oh, this is who we have become. Um, we have become people who are committed to expressive individualism. We're committed to this. And it's kind of like, well, it's predictable that this is, this is kind of like where it's all headed. Like it starts with the French and it ends with this. I mean, in, in some, in some respect, not, we're not blaming the French, but I mean, like the whole notion of all those, all those kinds of things. And, and, and some would say like, you know, it, evil is parasitic. Right. It doesn't create anything good on its own. It start, and so what do you have? You have, you know, you have the medieval church that, you know, their their legal teams are for the very first time talking about the individual. Like and, and nobody. And, and this is this is what Christians do. Like we talk about the importance of individual people. I don't know if you, this is where you wanted to go. But the, the, the whole the, the whole point being that um, when people come into my office with a thing called depression or a thing called anxiety, they think that that person has this thing, and, and and it's not to suggest that they are not depressed or not. They they are anxious or depressed, but they're completely unaware that what they are experiencing is at the same time a byproduct of this monolithic, huge cultural movement. This title movement has been taking place for five hundred years, four to five hundred years, and so it makes sense that like yeah we and and now our families look different. Right, our, our, like they're they're moving all over the place. It's estimated that if you're 35 years of age or younger, I saw I, re, I read one estimate. If you're 35 years of age or younger, it's estimated that by the time you quote unquote retire, somewhere in your mid to late 60s, you will have had 40 jobs. 40. There's not much dwelling there. There's not like it's just lots and lots and lots and lots of movement, and you probably won't be in an office with other people. You'll be at home. Now, I, we're saying all that, and then I'll say this. I think it is fair to say uh, that there is no institution in the world, whatever you want to call it, whatever the institution is, the church, education, industry, business, you name it, that is not fundamentally based off of the family. The family is the model for social institutions of any kind. You can have mostly two-parent homes, but you have a married couple and then you have children. Yes, it's true that you might have some families that have a single parent and one one parent is leading at certain times, another parent's leading at other times, different, you know, divisions of labor and so forth. But you have this, you have this leadership thing that's happening at the top. And then you have a firstborn and a secondborn and a thirdborn and so forth. And like we all know, like I'm a fourth born, a fourth born and I and don't think I didn't hear it. But I didn't hear about being the youngest in the family. Right. I mean, we have these different and this is this happens. And then this is what we do in the world that you will watch like you. And this is how it is that people find oddly enough, 
find themselves going to work in places that look an awful lot like their family and they wonder why they're so miserable. It's, tr it's true. We, we do this. We do this all the time. And so I, what, I, what I'm saying is, if this is the case, but how we understand and live out family has become so siloed in and of itself, it's not surprising that our sense of institutions would also start to crumble. What can we trust? Who can we trust? How can we trust? Because we don't have an embodied and fleshed felt sense as we grow up of what it means to have to live in the context of a larger institution in which I actually have to uh, pay attention to honoring what it's like, like my grandparents are gonna know what it's like for me to misbehave in public. And so that matters. Like I have, like I, it's inculcated within me that a larger, like I am responsible to a larger institution and the institution matters as a nurturing feature for me. And that is in fact the way it, it really worked out. Now it doesn't mean that families are perfect and institutions are perfect and so forth and so on. I, I, we get all that. But this is why we would say, look, even the Trinity itself is an institution, if you will, right? It doesn't live, but we don't want to live like that. I want to live with my expressive individualism. And that means that at the end of the day, even the institution has to meet my criteria for what I want it to be. I should not have to submit to any authority that is bigger than the thing that I want in the world. And this is all just like, as, as our friends at the Bible Project would say, you know, about everything you need to know about human beings, you can read on the first four pages of the Bible. Right? You, you don't really need much more than that. Right? We're all, this, this, is, this is who we, you know, I'm going to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm just going to keep taking and I'm going to do it. And, but then in so doing, I find that I am by myself. And unfortunately, uh, the brain is not made to live like that. And, you know, whether it takes me six weeks or it takes me six decades or, or if it takes us six generations um, to end up living with uh, the detritus of our decisions, time will tell. But this won't be the first time we've been here. We, we know what Babel and Babylon looks like. And... God is faithful and will just keep coming for us and we'll find ways to do that. Although I will say the way that we then respond to this is by saying, oh, how are we going to live in our families? This is how we respond to it. That's our reason. We respond by like, what are we going to do? Not globally, not through social media, not through large gatherings of 10,000 on Sunday mornings. But what are we going to do in the communities of embodied people that we have that we know that we can influence on a regular week in and week out basis? That was long winded. That was so helpful, though. So helpful. One of the other aspects, I think, of of what we're talking about here, um, you know, as a pastor, my job in, in so many ways, I feel like, is to help people uh, imagine and wrestle with what Jesus is calling them to be and to become. Um, and I'm struck with the reality that so many of the so much of the language of Jesus and the Bible is kind of agriculturally uh, grounded, you know, they're, they're metaphors for growth and transformation about vines and branches and healthy trees and healthy soil. And 
you know, the, the statistic you just quoted about the, the transient nature of the culture we live in, the, the technology that, you know, maybe isn't bad in and of itself, but it, it enables this kind of hyper fragmented way of life. Uh, most of us are just very, very disconnected from anything remotely agricultural. I'm trying to grow a vegetable garden and I have no idea what I'm doing, really. <laughs> but YouTube helps. <laughs> <laughs> like, not, like, that's what we, we use. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, right. And I'm going to technology to try to figure it out. Exactly. Yeah. But why are these metaphors uh, of kind of the, the health of the soil and, um, remaining uh, in Jesus, who is the vine? Why are those metaphors uh, so essential uh, as we think about what growth and spiritual maturity looks like? You know, it's, it's a great question. I, you know, I, the first thing I would say is uh, they were the metaphors he used because that was the world in which they lived, right? I mean, the Gospels are an ancient text. And so they're, I mean, I'm, I'm so like if Jesus is living in today's world, you know, he might use different metaphors. He might. I I, I don't know. I, I do know this. I do know that. Uh, and, and, and this is where neuroscience has, has, I think, been helpful for me. And that is, you know, there there as as much as we as human beings are committed and hell bent. Uh, toward making the world do what I want it to do. Uh, there are just certain things that the world's not going to do. Like, we're not going to get the world to spin faster than it's spinning. We're not going to get the tides to shift differently. Gravity, you know, the acceleration rate of gravity is probably still going to be, you know, 9.8 meters per second squared 100 years from now. But we live uh, as if we don't believe that's true. We live as if we believe that we can do life at whatever pace we want. Um, and when we start to experience the consequences of that, the negative consequences of that, then we just come up with another technology that will help reduce my distress for just a little while longer until eventually the train just catches up to me and runs me over. And, you know, I mean, this is when he sound, this is going to sound so crass, but I mean, like, and for a guy like me, the psychiatrist, like, this is all gravy because, like, you're all going to come to my office at some point in time. <laughs> I'm like, I like, I, you know, at one point, like, yes, I, I, I worry about the world. And I'm like, well, that's okay because, like, you you know, it's, it, it's good for business, which is a horrible thing to say. But, but, I, but, but, you know, but as, a, but as a pastor. And so, so I think, uh, you know, what, what the folk, what John Mark Comer and his folks are doing, uh, you know, just in terms of the, these, these liturgies. Of giving people, inviting people into places where we necessarily one of the things that 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 those that liturgies do, whether it's Sabbath, whether it's spiritual, spiritual disciplines of prayer and so forth, like to do these things effectively, um, it requires it necessarily requires that we slow our bodies down. I uh, you you may have seen this. Uh, I, I I'm, I'm blanking on the author, uh, but I came across an article uh, a week ago. Uh, by uh, a person who was invited for a couple of days to to spend a couple of days. It was in the Atlantic. This is the article. And a couple of, and you can find it, a, a person who was invited to spend a couple of days uh, at an Episcopal uh, high school uh, uh, in Delaware. 
And the whole article is about his amazement. He said, I, I, I got there, I, I shared meals with them, I met with their faculty members, I, I, he spoke a couple times to their student groups and so forth. And he said, I've, it, it's been a long time since I've been in a place where people were so polite and kind and attentive. And, and, and he said they weren't just attentive to me. He said they were attentive to each other. And you've got these upperclassmen that are attentive to these lowerclassmen. And people are just like, it's just a, he said, like, I felt like I walked into a different world. And he said, it wasn't until I had been there for a period of time that one of the, head, the headmaster or whoever, the head of school said, oh, you might not know, but we don't permit cell phones here. Like they can't have them, period. It's not like, oh, you can't have them during certain points of the day. Like you can't have them. And, it, it, you know, it's one data point. It's, it's you know, it, it, it is not a meta analysis of 40 papers, but um, it, it is, I, I think it is a, just a, 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 you know, a fairly plain common sense example of uh, how, um, uh, it requires work. It requires effort to live at the, to, it, it requires work to slow down to God's pace. And we would like to be able to, as I tell people, <laughs> people come to my office, uh, not necessarily, uh, they, they come because they want to be not sick, not because they want to be well. And to be well requires that you're going to have to do some things uh, because your brain uh, you know, when people say, well, I'm feeling depressed or anxious or whatever, they're like, so there must be something wrong with my brain. I say, actually, your brain is doing exactly what it is supposed to be doing under the conditions under which you have been asking it to live. Your brain's functioning quite normally, given what it's being asked to do, because it can't do what you want it to do. And it's letting you know it's not going to do that anymore. Hey there, we wanted to let you know that the Cartographers is starting a new series on the culture wars. Where did the term culture wars even come from? And how do we find a way through polarization? During this series, you will get to hear from our very special guests, including a seminary president, a former presidential speechwriter, and the guy who coined the term culture wars. We will guide you through the history of and gospel alternatives to the culture wars. So don't miss an episode. Subscribe to The Cartographers wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I am struck, you know, at this, um, the confluence of, you know, technology, this kind of practical pace of hurry and rush um, that you're talking about that we all know and live with. And, you know, how is, how do we begin to think about transformation? What are some kind of maybe some small practical steps that we can think about? Maybe even help us think, or like, what are the buckets? Because, you know, I think in various discipleship um, core kind of um, places that Bryce and I have been in through the years, we often get this kind of disconnect as we've been talking about through this whole time of between information and transformation um, and this idea between this these kind of different separate buckets of, you know, doctrine on the one hand and emotional health on the other. And it doesn't seem like these can really be integrated often or people are really scared about that integration um, because what if God actually impacts my emotions um, or, you know, what if I'm actually having to dig up 
family stuff. And so is this really spiritual? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think part of it is a an understandable pushback against um, a sort of pop therapeutic approach to uh, spirituality, and and so does that make sense? You know, it's sort of the the way that Christianity presents itself, or, or is presented, I should say, on Instagram. Um, you know, when we're, when we're talking about the integration of emotional health and being a disciple of Jesus, um, there's a reluctance to talk about emotional health because there's a, a guarding against the, you know, the, the therapeutic uh, world that we live in. Sorry, I didn't mean to. No, it's fine. I, yeah. So help us kind of connect those dots of integration how do we begin to think about that especially as you know if uh role if you have a role as a leader um in any organization what does that look like well uh so y'all are in the pca which means i'm 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 hearing bells of the reformation ring and it was someone no less than john calvin himself who said uh, one cannot know God if one does not know oneself. Which I think most people would be surprised to know came from that dude. Okay. <laughs> and then you have to ask. Same quote, right? Right. right. So, so then you have to ask yourself the question, well, who is the me that we're talking about that would be important for me to know? And again, I want to suggest that we... Uh, even the way I answer that question is shaped by modernity to the point where the me that I think I'm coming to know, the me that is loving God with all my heart, mind, soul, strength, whatever that means, uh, is not the me that a first century Jew would have been imagining when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And um, and, and this is where, because we have pushed our relationship to God so much into the realm of the abstract. It's what I think. It's my theology. It's in a, you know, it's this set of principles that I attest to. That that's that's how I know that I believe. That that's how I know that I'm a Christian. Um. And so uh, what, I, what I'm inviting people to consider is that if we actually look at what the text says, the text itself says that we are mud and we are breath. And if you take either one of those away, it's being a human being. And so when I'm talking about the me that I'm coming to know, we're talking about the me that senses, that images, that feels, that thinks, and that behaves with his body, all those things. For me to love my God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength means I have to love him with all of those things. Uh, when, when we talk about, and, and so, you know, hence, uh, when, when people say uh, things like, uh, I, I, don't, I don't love my wife anymore. I've, I've got I'm, I'm, I'm to leave this marriage. I don't love my wife anymore. You, okay, okay. so what, what does that mean? And you say, well, I, I don't, what, what you're really saying is that I don't have these set of feelings and thoughts and so forth that I used to have. Oh, okay. So the dishes that you just washed last night and the diapers that you're changing and the car that you're getting the oil changed with, all those things that you do with your body, 
right? That doesn't count as acts of love because that's not what my mind believes that I am. I am this, just this limited collection of things that I feel and I think. And that's what my relationship with Jesus is limited to. So first of all, I'm not actually like we, we have an incredibly atrophied and tepid sense of the me that Calvin's even talking about or that the Jews would have talked about when it comes to the, the Shema, right? The beautiful thing about neuroscience for me is that it is reintroducing us to us, to all of us. And one of those things has to do with this whole notion of emotion. For example, just, just for example, the largest scroll in the Hebrew Bible, in all of the, of the Christian canon, is, is all about emotion. Like, this, these are the Psalms. Like, you figure, like, look, if the emotions aren't that important, why do you need 150 of these things? <laughs> why can't you do, like, five? Maybe, okay, maybe 10. Like, like, can't, 10 emotions. Like, why do you, like, one for each emotional, we, we can be done with it. No, like, because emotion was all, and, and because they believed in a God who could take it. And they know, like, these are people who know grief. Like, they're not, they're not shying. They don't flinch in the face of this. These are people who know grief. You read John 11. Mary is the one who gets Jesus' attention. Martha comes. She says, what does she say? Like, if you hadn't been here. And he's like, and they should, but still, whatever you want to do. Right? And then he says, like, your brother will rise. She misses the comment. She goes on, like, she starts down the path of some kind of theological conversation about the resurrection. When Mary gets there, all she can do is weep. And that's when he responds. It's emotions. And we can have a long conversation about the place of this, about, about like, like, look, human beings, you take emotion out of the equation, we stop moving. That's just the way it is. That, that, that's how it works. And so what we're saying is to love God with all of us includes my, you know, becoming aware of all of the me that is here that must be in play if love of my God is actually going to happen. And that necessarily, I, like, I can't, I, I realize I keep cutting you off. That necessarily, that necessarily requires, like, okay, this is the other thing, because, like, I hear this, like, what is, how is Kurt going to love God? And, and, like, that's not the way it works. I have to love God with you. I need you to help me love God. Like, I cannot do this by myself. My brain is not made to do this by myself. We love God so that I can love God. Yeah. So I, this is so helpful. And uh, you keep kind of, I, I really appreciate how you keep pointing out the, you know, the, 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 the me that John Calvin was talking about in the 1500s and the, you know, the self that, uh, you know, the psalmist is writing about um, is not the modern self. And so w we tend to bifurcate um, so many things, but one of the things that is bifurcated in the modern world is uh, science and theology, right? And so I, I wonder if some of the the question here, though, is about the source of authority, because I, I feel like if I'm if I'm preaching a sermon on um, Psalm 42 and 43, why so downcast on my soul, put your hope in God. And I go into the, the nature of depression and talk about maybe what part of what you need to do in applying this message is go out and go for a run today. Um, 
a lot of Christians are, oh, that was really helpful, Pastor. Thank you so much. But we've also lived through a, a pandemic where one of the, um, let's just say, kind of flashpoints for controversy was the phrase, follow the science. And and so I wonder if if some of this is just about at least the perception of the source of authority. If, it, if it's coming from scripture and we're bringing in neurobiology, okay. But if it, if it feels like the, it we're beginning with neurobiology, that, that some people get uncomfortable then. All right. Well, let me start with the, the phrase, uh, follow the science. And I, I think you're right. I mean, like that, it does. It just became a flashpoint phrase for all kinds of things. And you, you, you kind of want to say like, well, if you really want to know what we're like as human beings, follow the science. That's what you, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like that. And he's like, oh, okay. Yeah. We're, we're like, we're just, we're nuts. This is what's what we are. Cause of like all the different ways. Um, and then you, uh, if we are, then we're reminded of the uh, philosopher of science, Michael Polanyi, who once famously said, there's no such thing as science. There are only scientists. Nobody follows the science. We follow Anthony Fauci or we follow other people who don't like Anthony Fauci. That's who we, we don't follow. We don't follow ideas. We follow people who tell us about ideas. And so we would dare say then the same thing is true of a thing that we call like when we talk about a thing like the authority of scripture. Like we all kind of know what we think we're talking about when we say that, but we're not really just talking about the authority of a text sitting there idly on the table. We're talking about the people who've introduced us to the text and the people who teach us about the text. The question is not, do I trust the text? The question is, do I trust Bryce? That's the question. And I can't know if I can trust Bryce if I don't know him. I can't just know Bryce from the pulpit. Like that doesn't really tell me anything. I got lots of, I got, I got, I, 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 I got politicians a dime a dozen who I can hear from the pulpit. Uh, what I want to know is uh, Bryce, a guy who I can trust because this is a dude who knows what life is really like because he's named the things about himself that he hates the most. And he's repairing ruptures and da, 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 da. And he's saying, and I'm going to get up the next day and I'm still going to follow Jesus. This is really hard to do. I'm not very good at it. I didn't love my wife and my kids today the way I wanted to. And this is what I'm going to do. Because Jesus knows that I didn't, and he's still coming for me. And if people aren't sensing, because the people in your pews know that there are parts of themselves that they don't want you to know about, because they know that once you do, you'll stop talking to them. Or you'll only have something, this is the story that they tell. And until they can be in the room with you or with your elders or with other people who are Jesus followers, who are when they expose the parts of themselves that they hate the most, are not going to leave the room. Instead, like the woman with the bleeding dyscrasia, right? She thinks she's got a whole plan. I'm going to go undercover. Nobody's going to see me. All I'm going to do is tug on the hem of his garment. That's all I'm going to do. And then I'm going to get out. And Jesus is having none of it. He's coming for everything, not in her plan. And until and or unless 
we can be in communities where we sense in our bodies that people are coming for everything. Like, yeah, oh, yes, I'm going to come to my small group and I'm going to do the Bible study and so forth and so on. And then you discover somebody that just asks me the question. So wait, I know that you just talked about this or that, but like, what's what's really going on? If I'm not able to bring my story into the room, my story is not available to be transformed. And it's not going to happen if I don't have somebody in the room that I can trust, not because I know that they know everything they need to know, but because I know that they know that they don't know everything they need to know. That was, that was great. We're all just teary over here on the other side of the mic. It's great. Thank you. Um, you know, I think as we, as we wrap up, you've, you've given us not only a lot to think about, but a lot to experience. And you've written a lot about this idea of imagination. And I think part of even our conversation is an, is an act of gospel imagination. What would you say, you know, as we think about, you know, entering that small group room and um, making space for our own stories, making space for other people's stories, um, showing up on a Sunday or even showing up in our places of work or in our families um, to have a more integrated Christian imagination, what would be maybe a few practical steps you could offer for our listeners? Um, well, one thing I would, I would, I would say is that uh, we, I, you know, we, we like to say in our work that um, uh, there's nothing that we do that we don't first imagine doing. So our imagination is always preceding everything. Even when I walk across the floor, like I think like, well, I'm not imagining that. I'm just, I'm just walking across the floor. But at some level, my brain in advance of my taking the step is imagining that I'm going to take the step and, this, and the floor is going to hold. I'm imagining this. But transformation requires my being able, my, my eventually imagining something that right now I don't or can't. Because if I'm going to be different, I have to imagine something differently. And as Leslie Newbegin was famous for saying, is that all revelation necessarily requires contradiction. If I live in the world believing the world is a certain way and then you reveal it to me in a, such a way that it's not connected at all to the, like, the rules that I've assumed they be, right? This is Jesus coming. It's necessarily going to contradict something within me. It's going to be distressing. Because it's going to require me to like reevaluate everything, and and this and this is both liberating, right? Then this is what this is Jesus, both liberating and it is unsettling. And so uh, it's going to be important, first of all, for us to have people in our lives um, who are able to invite us to who who themselves are imagining something that's just out beyond what I'm able to, waiting for our imaginations to catch up but who themselves are not impatient with the fact that it's taken my imagination a little while to catch up. Um, and so uh, the, the one thing I would say, again, is that our, our listeners, here's the thing, our listeners will hear this and they'll go, okay, what can I do? What will I, Kurt, do? And I want to suggest like that's not what the brain actually, that's not how the brain functions most well. The first, so the first thing I would want to invite us to consider is who is one person with whom? I can begin to do some of these things together with whatever these things are so that my brain is not doing it by myself because it doesn't do very well when it's by itself. But remember, we live in a world that 
like this is we're, we're training people to live like you know it's like it's like the great divorce the opening chapter where hell is a place where people build their houses further and further away from each other and so then we can ask but there are some questions that we ask and we might be familiar with these these questions that we ask that when we when we dwell and gaze and then live this is psalm 27 4 we can ask the question well where am i where am i today where am i where am I? and by where am i i don't just mean like well i'm in my office sitting at my desk in front of a computer no I, uh, where am I in terms of what I sense, what I image, what I feel, what I think? That's one question. This is God's question to Adam and Eve in the garden. Where am I? The second question is, uh, what do I want? What do I want? Now, this is, this question is tricky. Uh, we, uh, people in general, but Christians in particular, this makes us nervous. Answering this question, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, I, I, am I going to have the right answer or the wrong answer? I'm going to make God angry or somebody's, I'm gonna, if, I, if I'm, I'm going to be too much or too little or all the things. Or my, somebody like, well, I, I don't really know what I want because I've been practicing for so long, not letting myself ask, let alone answer the question. But what, what do I want? And I don't mean like, oh, I, I want world peace or I want, or I want a better marriage. Like, I, uh, yeah, but I don't know what that means. I mean, so answering this question in physically measurable ways. Like I want, I want to be more patient. I want to be kinder. I want to, uh, I want to commit to uh, asking my wife before Mother's Day where she wants to go for Mother's Day dinner, and I want to commit to asking this to her a month before. Right? These, these are simple, but these are it's an I think you know what I mean. Like we're we're talking about measurable embodied acts that demonstrate what I want. And not what I want, I mean, not just what I want for me. It's what do I want for you? What do I want? But, but again, not for the world or the relationships within, within which I'm actually living. You know, not for the, you know, I've got a congregation of, of 500 people. Like, I don't have relationships with 500 people. I have relationships with a half dozen people in that congregation. Right, but what, and, and, and they're going to have relationships. So for the people that I have relationships with, what do I want for me and for us? What do I want? Uh, here's another question that's really important. Um, and, you know, because the, the, the answering these questions is telling us who we are. But if I'm going to do this with somebody else, somebody else can ask me this question. And we're going to do this together. And here's another question. is like, what, what are my griefs? We, in our work, we, the, the word grief, right? Jesus was a person of grief, right? He knows grief. This is Isaiah. Right. He's familiar with it. And uh, grief is a word that is a placeholder for all of my rage and my sadness and my my shame and my fear that we would put in these categories that are unpleasant. That, of course, you can go find if you want to read them in the 150 somewhere in the Psalms, you're going to find them. But we need to name them, because if I don't name my grief, then I am not yet aware of the places where Jesus is still longing to come and heal and transform, requiring me to forgive the source of my grief in order for that to no longer be energy I'm burning, such that that energy is now available for him to take me into the space where he wants to create beauty and goodness in the world. I can't do that as long as that energy is being siphoned off with me compartmentalizing all of that. So naming our longings, naming our grief, naming where we are, and uh, letting other people in on this is just a – there's a couple of things that we can do to um, – I mean, there, of course, we could talk forever today about other things we can do, but that's a place to start. 
Wow, Kurt, this has been uh, such a rich conversation. We're so thankful for uh, your time, but really sharing uh, so much of your work and your, yourself with us uh, today. Thank you for being with us. Guys, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It is edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org. We wanted to let you know that The Cartographers is starting a new series on the culture wars. Where did the term culture wars even come from? And how do we find a way through polarization? During this series, you will get to hear from our very special guests, including a seminary president, a former presidential speechwriter, and the guy who coined the term culture wars. We will guide you through the history of and gospel alternatives to the culture wars. So don't miss an episode. Subscribe to The Cartographers wherever you get your podcasts.